0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the Greater Pittsburgh Metropolitan Area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I am actually at John 2 is where we're going to pick up. John 2 verses 23 through John 3 verse 5. Or verse 12. Let's go to verse 12. Verse 12. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. heavenly things. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reading of your word. We look to you this morning for your grace that you would teach us, O Father, that you would speak to our hearts. And We especially ask for your blessing this morning, Lord, because due to familiarity of these verses, sometimes the sheer familiarity can keep us from seeing things that we ought to see so, O oh Lord, we pray that you would bless us this morning as we take a fresh look at these verses that are well known to many of us. And Father, we ask that you would be pleased to uh, open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, and just by manner of review, it's always good to go back. I mean, as we. As we look at these books verse by verse, working our way from start to finish, sometimes it's, um, it's easy to get lost, you know, when you're looking at a small section like this, it's easy to get lost. And so I always like to really begin by reviewing where we were two weeks ago, we saw Jesus come down from Capernaum, in verse 12 and verse 13, he makes his way into Jerusalem. The Passover feast is at hand, and you'll recall that this is the first of three Passovers that John is recording for us. This is a time frame, if you will. And the Passover, in terms of significance, Passover was one of the most significant of the feasts that were on the Jewish calendar. So Jesus, along with many pilgrims, are are finding their way, making their way into Jerusalem. Jesus goes into Jerusalem, He enters into the temple precincts, and there in verse 14 He finds the selling of oxen, sheep, pigeons, money changers, and etc. sitting there. And he forms a whip, if you will, and begins to single handedly run all of the livestock out of there, as well as all of the merchandisers. He basically cleans the place. And in verse 16, he indicts them Take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise or a house of trade. And our focus then. Uh, was in verse 17 where uh, it is said his disciples are looking at what is taking place and they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And what is interesting is they're looking at the event that's taking place and the disciples are processing the event through the lenses of Scripture. How refreshing to be looking at an event and processing it through the lenses of Scripture. What a great habit to get into. And uh, we saw that they were thinking of Psalm 69, and what we really picked up on was the zeal. Zeal for your house will eat me up, says the King James translation. Zeal for your house is consuming. This is the Lord's heart being revealed to us. This is Jesus' heart. What is he zealous for? He's zealous for the glory of the Father. That's what he's on about, and we spent some time Uh, focusing on that and praying and asking the Lord to fill our hearts with similar zeal for God's glory. We're on about our own glory good enough, aren't we? Think of how zealous we can be for our own glory, our own pride, our own honor, and compare that and contrast that to how zealous we are for God's glory. Now, we we need a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, don't we? And that was our focus two weeks ago. And if we would have been standing there watching Jesus clear the place, I think we would have been probably quite happy about it because we'd have been tired of getting ripped off there. We'd have been tired of all the commotion. We'd have been tired of all kinds of things. But I think a lot of us would have been like, ooh, boy, what are going to be the ramifications of this? And in verse 18, here come, here come members of the probably the temple precinct, police, if you will, for lack of a better term, security. Security shows up. I think it's probably safe to conclude there might have been a member or two of the Sanhedrin present, and they go to Jesus, and and they, they say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And I pointed out to you a couple of weeks ago that even D.A. Carson in his commentary on these verses remarks that even the question and the way the question's framed really kind of gives way that they recognize full well that they're dealing at least with a prophet of God there. Think of the question. Is that a normal question you would ask? It's not. I mean, you might say, what do you think you're doing? What gives you the right to do I mean. Lock him up. But instead they say, what sign? What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them. He answered them in this really mysterious way. He says, destroy this temple in verse 19, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the disciples themselves didn't even understand what he was talking about. And I pointed out last week that Jesus often speaks this way to people who are walking in willful, willful opposition to him. We looked at Matthew 13 in these regards where Jesus is speaking through that series of parables there. And his disciples even approach him and say, Lord, why do you speak to them in parables? And what's he say? Quoting from Isaiah. So seeing, they'll not see, and hearing, they'll not hear, and you know the rest. So Jesus often speaks to those who are walking not with a lack of intellectual understanding. They have the intellect to understand but walking in a willful disobedience. In spite of all the things, very clearly before their eyes, they're saying, no, we like things the way they are. We don't want you interfering with our gig. We got a happy gig right here. Don't mess with it. Jesus speaks to them in these mysterious ways that they don't understand. What a dangerous position to be in, huh? What a dangerous position to be in. So in love with the world that you despise its creator. That's the position that they're in. That's the position that this group's in. Can you show us a sign? He just did. This is a good time as any to, to, to look at John chapter 20, which I think we'll probably do many, many times before this series is over. But you go to John 20. John 20 and verses 30 and 31 are so important as we work our way through the book because John there gives us his purpose in writing, doesn't he? And there he says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. I think some of these signs are alluded to. I think in the passage we come to this morning, there's allusion to those signs, even though each individual sign's not recorded. But look at verse 31. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, and listen real carefully to this last part, that by believing you may have life in his name. Life life, that by believing, you may have life. Now, back to this. Jesus has given them a sign. Could any one of us just walked into the temple precincts, as I've said a couple of times now, and drove out that livestock, drove out all of those people, cleared that place without causing such a big ruckus that it would bring the Roman guard in? I mean, Jesus is literally grabbing their money buckets. And he's pouring them out on the, on, the, on the temple courts. Can you imagine that? Walk up, just stroll in there and grab their money and dump it out on the courts. And what do they do? They're probably shuffling, trying to get as much of it gathered up as they can. But one thing be for sure they did is they got out of there. No questions asked. And what is Jesus doing? He's, he's removing the veil Uh, so to speak, at least partially removing the veil of his authority and his power and his strength. Well, there's a sign elsewhere in the Gospels where it is said, where uh, they they ask Jesus for a sign. Will you give us a sign? Will you give us a sign? Keep in mind, he's given them many signs, and they're ignoring these signs. He's given them many signs, and he's ignoring those signs. So here we have this group of people who are walking in willful disobedience. They they don't believe because they don't want to believe, and regardless of the evidence that's before them. And that brings us to our text this morning. In verse 23, there we see that while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, there many believe in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. What signs? John doesn't go into detail about that. I think the clearing of the temple was one of them. But John isn't pointing those out. John will point out a number of signs as we go through his gospel. He will point to signs formally. There are ever other signs that he doesn't point to formally. We'll look at a couple of them this morning. Uh, but obviously, Jesus is performing signs. Perhaps he was performing miracles at this day. Uh, John doesn't specify here. But what he does say is here is this second group of people. And this second group of people are seeing these signs And as a result of seeing these signs, they're believing in his name. Well, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? That all sounds good, right? This sounds great. Uh, This thing's getting traction. But then when we look at verse 24, we discover that there's a problem. There we're told that Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Actually, in the Greek, there's a play on words. The same word is used. It's just inflected differently. If we were Greek readers and we read in the Greek, we'd see that. This believing in, their believing in him and his entrusting in them, or they're believing in him and him believing in them. A lot of times you hear people say, oh, Jesus believes in you. People tell unbelievers, Jesus believes in you. Well, they ought to read this verse. It doesn't seem to suggest that, does it? He doesn't entrust himself to them. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. What's going on? What's what's wrong here? Well, it's not the first time in our study here where we've seen somebody see a sign and believe in Jesus. In fact, if you look back to chapter 1 and verse 35, you remember when we were there, John the Baptist is standing with two of his disciples in verse 35. In verse 36, he sees Jesus coming by. He says, behold the Lamb of God. And in that moment, two of his disciples heard him say this, and they began to follow him, right? And um, one of the disciples, verse 40, who heard John speak, was Andrew. And he goes and finds Simon Peter, his brother, And in verse 42, he brings Simon Peter uh, to Jesus. And Jesus looks at Simon Peter and says, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Boy, what an experience that must have been for Simon Peter. It's like, whoa, okay, I don't believe we've met formally, but you already know all these things about me. And that becomes even clearer as you... As you look at what happens next, in verse 43, Jesus finds Philip. He tells Philip, follow me. Philip begins to follow him. Philip runs to Nathanael, says to Nathanael in verse 45, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael's skeptical. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come on, come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? How do you know me? I've never met you. But he knows, doesn't he? He knows all his children. In fact, he knows every heart. In fact, when he looks, he can see into the heart clearer than we can see each other on the outside, doesn't he? In fact, he goes on. It shows him a sign, if you will. He goes on. Jesus, Jesus said, before Philip called you, verse 48, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, well, because, because I showed you this sign, that's well, not exactly what it says, is it? But it's in essence what's going on, isn't it? Because I showed this to you, you believe. Oh, you're going to see greater things than this. There's a clear example, especially in Nathanael's part where he sees Jesus do something that men cannot do, that only God can do. And the result of that is he believes in Jesus. Then we come to verse 23 and we see people believing in his name because they saw the signs, but Jesus does not entrust himself to them. We want to ask ourselves, what's wrong? What's the difference between Nathanael and this group of people in verse 23? And the answer to that is what gets unfolded as we go along. As we go along, we see that very answer there being unfolded. Jesus does not entrust himself to these folks. In fact, verse 25 is really instructional. In verse 25, we're told that he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What does that mean? It means that Jesus does not need Rick Anderson's testimony. He does not need my personal testimony. He does not need me to say, I believe in Christ. He doesn't need that because he knows my heart. In fact, he can see my heart better than I can see it. He doesn't need uh, Philip, for example, to come to him and say, hey, you know, um, this is a great gig you got going on here, and I know this guy, Nathaniel. He's an upstanding guy. We should get him into the club. You know, let me make an introduction. He doesn't need that introduction. Jesus knows. See? He knows. He doesn't need man to testify because he knows what is in man. Does that make sense? Now, I want to show you something else, too, before we proceed. Notice the versification. We have chapter and we have verse. And it's kind of strange. I mean, I begin at the end of chapter 2 and go into chapter 3. Normally it's nice. It's neater than that, isn't it? Normally we go to chapter 3 and we begin with verse 1. But here we're going to the end of chapter 2 and going into chapter 3. And being advised, as I've said many times, the, the chapters and the verses are not inspired. They were added to the Scriptures much later. And I think that a better case could be made to put... Chapter 3 at the end of verse 22. Let me show you. Read. Imagine if chapter 2 ended with verse 22. We would read these words. When therefore, verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, chapter 3. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But on Jesus, or but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. You see how that flows together. What John is saying to us is, that there's this group of people that believed in Jesus because they saw the signs, but Jesus, halt! Not so fast. You know, the evangelists would be jumping up and down. Look at all these people. Look at all their blah, 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 blah. I mean, they've been counting heads and counting noses and counting nickels. They've been all excited, but Jesus, no, 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 no. No, no, no. This group's, this group's, there's, there's, no. No, no, no. The one who can look and see inside the heart says, no. There's this group of people. They saw the signs and they believe. And John's telling us that out of this group was this man named Nicodemus. One person in this group. His name is Nicodemus. We're told he's a ruler of the Jews in verse 1. We're told that, in in fact, um, he's a teacher. If you look at verse 10, you see that he's a distinguished. I think we can conclude from verse 10 he's a distinguished teacher. Because Jesus says to him in verse 10, he says, he doesn't say, you're a teacher of Israel. He says, you're the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus seems to be a very distinguished teacher of Israel. Someone who is highly influential. Someone who maybe is a teacher of teachers. As Jesus said, you're the teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand these things. So he's a ruler of the Jews. He's a teacher of Israel. He's probably a distinguished teacher of Israel. Some conclude that he's an older gentleman because of his comment that he makes. That We'll look at here in a few minutes. I don't know if that's so or not. But one thing we're told is that he's a Pharisee, and I think we should stop and look at that for a minute. Uh, he's a, a member of the Pharisees, is a man of the Pharisees, if you will. Who are the Pharisees? We read about them all the time when we read the Gospels, don't we? But who are they? Who are the Pharisees? Now, where the Pharisees come from is pretty much unknown exactly where. The exact origin of them is, is not so well known. But it appears to be a pushback against Hellenization, now is anybody I know some of you are familiar with that word "hellenization, And I, I bring it up because if you have in your Bibles um, a couple of articles, maybe between Malachi and Matthew, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it might have like a, an article or an introduction, uh, an introduction to the New Testament, and it'll cover the period of time between Malachi and between Matthew, and there you're likely to come across the word "Helen." Hellenized, Hellenism, or Hellenization. And Helen simply means Greek. So it's Greekization, uh, or Greekism, if you will. Alexander the Great, who came in and conquered the known world, he didn't just only come in and conquer the known world, but he came in advocating uh, Greek culture to all his subjects. And uh, this is something that God would use. Uh, He would use this as people began to speak and read Greek the Lord would, um, he would um, put his words in Greek, would he not? In fact, it's in what they call Koine Greek. It's common Greek. It's the common language of the people, if you will. But a lot of this greek this, uh, Greekization, if you will, or Hellenization uh, was pagan. And there was a group of people that were like really resisting imposing this. And it is believed that the Pharisees had evolved out of that group. They were considered the separate ones. And as William Hendrickson points out in his commentary, they were advocates of many truthful doctrines. He points to a four. He says they they were advocates of the divine decree, for example, advocates of man's moral accountability before God, advocates of man's immortality. They were advocates of the resurrection life. They produced Gamaliel and Paul. Gamaliel was the great teacher of Israel if you will, one of the great teachers. And uh, Paul as well, very distinguished teacher. Josephus tells us there was about 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Herod the Great. And even though the group was fairly small, it's not necessarily a very large group of people. They were very influential. And I think that's an important thing Hold on. There's a couple of things about this we need to hold on to. I think we're going to miss this deck. They're very, very influential. They influenced a lot of people. And uh, they were seen by the people as holy. They're very holy people, very religious people. And they were very much centered on uh, external rights. They're very much centered on the out- outside, if you will. Very much centered on appearance but uh, hardly centered on inward transformation. They were all about the outside and not about the inside. For example, if you just turn, keep your place in John, and turn to Matthew 23, there Jesus, his, his fiercest words are reserved for this group of folks. He pronounces these woes in this chapter. And there in Matthew 23 and verse 25 and following, I'll just give you a snid bit. Jesus says in verse 25, "Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites. Literally a hypocrite,'s one who wears a mask. It's one who's in costume. It's one who's trying to look on the outside what they are not on the inside, trying to appear to be someone that they're not. He says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others.' but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They're not fooling our Lord, are they? There isn't a human being alive that can fool our Lord, because He can see our hearts. We can fool each other. We cannot fool Him. They're all concerned about the outside, all concerned, you know, about about the inside. The inside, it's neglected. The inside is neglected. Something else let me point out to you really quick while we're on this subject. If you turn to Matthew 15... The Pharisees had their oral tradition, if you will, and this is important to hold on to. They had their oral oral tradition. In Matthew 15, we get a glimpse of this, and we get a glimpse of our Lord's attitude towards this, which is very important. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus in verse 1, Matthew 15. They come from Jerusalem, and they say, they're they're indicting Jesus' disciples. They're saying, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why are you doing that? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Okay, this is part of their oral tradition, which they're binding on men's conscience with this. They've got their oral tradition, and they're raising it to the level of Scripture is what they're doing. In fact, they're raising it above Scripture. Notice how Jesus answered. He answered them, verse 3, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He says, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles Father or mother must surely die, but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given up to God, he need not honor his father or mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. So they're on about their tradition. They're taking man-made rules and they're, and they're, they're, they're raising them above, if you will, uh, the word of God. Now, Nicodemus is a member of this group, Back to John chapter three. As a member of this group, he comes to Jesus. And we're told in verse two that he comes by night. I mean, we probably most of you have heard comments about that. That, you know, some say he's coming by night because he's sneaking around. He doesn't want nobody to know. He's meeting with Jesus. That could be the case. It could just be the case that when would you get when would you be able to have a one on one like this with Jesus, anyways? Probably not going to get one in the daytime, as busy as he is. It could be both. Could be there's no opportunity through the day, and it could be he's sneaking around. We don't know, but he come, what we do know is he comes to Jesus, and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with us. Here, he's practically speaking for the group that we have in verse 23, isn't he? It's like what he's saying is saying we. That means more. There's more of us. We, we've seen the signs, Jesus. We've seen your signs, and we've concluded from your signs that you couldn't do these unless you're unless you're a teacher who's come from God. Now, notice Jesus answers in a way that at first might seem very strange to us. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We'll think to ourselves, why is Jesus answering like that? Why is he answering like that? And, and I think what we ought to ask is this question. What's on Nicodemus' mind anyways? Why is he coming to Jesus? He doesn't ask Jesus a question. He makes a statement. What's his question? What's on his mind? Now, maybe he asked a question and John didn't record the question for us. That's a possibility. But I think what's more probable is he never asked a question. But Jesus, who knows the heart, that's the context. Jesus, who knows the heart, knows what's on his mind. He knows it completely. And what's on his mind is probably a question that's just like the question the rich young ruler brings. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says, great teacher, tell me, how may I have eternal life? How may I have eternal life? Jesus gives him a different answer. Why? Because he's full of self-righteousness. Jesus gives him the law, doesn't he? he? Gives him the law. But here he's giving Nicodemus a different answer. He's What's he doing to Nicodemus? He says, listen, truly I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Jesus is pointing to the inside. He's pointing to the inward transformation that is necessary for us to be able to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is confused. Who wouldn't be? Nicodemus is confused. He says, How can, in verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? And then he has this, this absurd suggestion can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's silly. Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what is meant by this phrase, water and spirit? A lot of ink spilled on that one, isn't there? You ever come to that and think, what exactly is in view with this Water and spirit. When you come to things like this, always remember that Scripture is its best interpreter. Scripture interprets Scripture. The Bible interprets itself. Oh, well, where do we go? What is what is Jesus doing? Jesus is speaking of the prophets here and the Psalms. In fact, keep your place in John. I want to show you just a couple of places. If you look at, start with Psalm 51, which is a well-known psalm. It's a psalm where David is repenting of his... His uh, affair with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, we get a glimpse of what Jesus is on about here. If you look at verse 7, David in his prayer of repentance, he says, To the Lord, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Then notice he says, Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What does washing involve? It involves water, doesn't it? And if you look down to verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Here we have this washing, this cleansing, this water and spirit within a couple of verses of each other, don't we? Go to Isaiah. I love Isaiah. Isaiah always says something to say. Like there's probably no sermon that you preach where Isaiah doesn't have something to say. I love Isaiah. Isaiah 44 Isaiah 44. If you look at verses 3 through 5, there, here this imagery is beautiful, where the Lord's promising to pour water on the thirsty land and streams on dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And here the imagery is this ground that's parched, if you will, and unable to produce or sustain life until this water is poured on it. So there you got water. And then we're told, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Life. Remember I told you in John 20, verse 31, to hold on to life, that we may have life in his name. Here's an imagery of life that involves those water, this pouring, and involves the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Verse 5, this one will say, I'm the Lord's. Another will call in the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. You see this beautiful imagery of life. Beautiful imagery of inward transformation that results and expresses itself in this outward beauty, not just this show on the outside while dead man's bones are on the inside, you see. But I think what really is on Jesus' mind, I don't see how it cannot be, is Ezekiel 36. We read from Ezekiel 37, but let's look at Ezekiel 36. Another famous passage in Ezekiel, in fact, about the, generally when you're hearing any quotes from Ezekiel, it's usually 36 and 37, isn't it? One of these days we're going to have to go through Ezekiel. But um, Ezekiel 36, if you look at verse 24, there the promise is, God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Looky there, water and spirit. And I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is talking to a teacher who Jesus believes the teacher should know these texts and understand these texts and understand water in the Spirit because of his knowledge of these texts. Jesus is meeting Nicodemus right where Nicodemus is, just like he meets every one of us right where we are, uh, right where we are because he knows our hearts. Now, let's flesh this out further. Let's go to Titus. Titus, if you go to the very back of the Bible, Revelation and work backwards, Revelation, you got John's letters, Peter's letters, James, Hebrews, You've Philemon and then Titus chapter 3. Titus 3. So we build this, working on this imagery that Jesus has given to Nicodemus, Titus 3 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul says here, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's a parallel verse to Ephesians 2, isn't it? You were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, etc. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Greek words, neck You can't believe, you, you can't do anything when you're dead. When you're dead, you're dead, is what this, the text there is pointing out. You were once dead. Here the apostle Paul is saying much the same thing. We were ourselves, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions, pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, hating one another. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. We may be looking at this on Wednesday night, just an advertisement for Bible study, because we're going to be looking at the goodness of God. Here's the goodness of God. (laughs) Here's the goodness of God. When the goodness... And loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing. There's washing. Water. Washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Some of you, especially those who got the, the, the rainbow Bibles, it says rebirth, doesn't it? It says rebirth instead of regeneration, doesn't it? Regeneration is a theological word that we use that speaks of this idea of the Holy Spirit performing the spiritual surgery on giving a person a new heart, a heart that can believe, a heart that is, uh, a heart that can say no to sin, a heart that's no longer uh, under the dominion and tyranny of the evil one, a heart that is set free to serve the Lord God. This idea of being born from above, if you will, or being born again. This is what Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus. And here we learn two things that are so vitally important for us to know. And the first is, this is not a work that we do. This is a work that God does. There's never once in any of the passages that I made reference to where we are involved in doing this work. It's all the Lord's doing, isn't it? He does it. Who changed your heart? You didn't change it. In fact, Jeremiah, I think, would say to you listen, uh, <laughs> you can't change the color of your skin, or, the, <laughs> or n- ne- neither can the leopard change his spots anymore than you can change your heart. Who changed your heart? The Lord changed your heart. Oh, well, there's the goodness of the Lord. And the next thing that we learn from this is that that change of heart proceeds, it comes before faith. It comes before faith. This has to happen, Jesus says to Nicodemus, because until this happens, you can't even see the kingdom of God. You can be the teacher of Israel. You can memorize the Old Testament, as some of these guys did. The apostle Paul, it is said, had memorized the Old Testament. Imagine memorizing Chronicles and getting all those names right. You rattle off 100 names and someone say, ah, 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 you got 99 wrong. Start again. Yet when on the Damascus Road, the Lord calls to him and blinds him with his light, what does he say? The one who memorized the Old Testament looks up and says, who are you, Lord? Who are you? He couldn't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus has a problem. He looks good on the outside, but he can't see the kingdom of God. He's not so good on the inside. Without this work, we cannot even see. Now, let's make some application from here. The first application is one that was Americans we don't like very much, but it's one we have to herald from the housetops, and it goes like this. You are not in charge. I'm not in charge. We are not in charge. We like to think that we're in charge. Man is in charge of his destiny. How many times have you seen that? Hobgobbley gook. Really? That's absurdity. We're not in charge. We're not in charge. Some might say, well, that's a little bit frightening. I hope so. If you find that a little bit frightening, that means you're starting to believe it. You mean I'm not in charge? No, you're not in charge. I'm not in charge. Anybody here think they're in charge? We think that all the time, don't we? We go through life like we're in charge. What can we control? Is everybody satisfied with the temperature out there? Would anybody like to lower it a degree or two? How about the humidity? We might like the temperature fine, but it was, a, was it a little bit too humid for most of your taste? Well, let's change it. I mean, surely we could bring it down a couple of dew points, couldn't we? We're helpless. We can't even change the temperature, the outside. Someone says, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to live it up. I'm going to go out and I'm going to live it up. God will take care of me. I'm going to go out and have my fun. One of these days I'm going to come back and God will take care of me. That's kind of what the prodigal, the son and the prodigal, one of the sons, the younger son in the prodigal, story of the prodigal does, isn't it? He wants his inheritance. He wants to go out. He wants to live it up. He goes out and he lives it up. He spends all his money. Famine comes, he's nice work, feeding these pigs. Next thing you know, he's, here he is. He's, pigs are eating better than him. And in that text, Jesus, when he tells that story, at one point in that text, he says, but he came to himself. He came to himself. And you see, in that story, Jesus teaches us the human side of it. That's the human side of it. To Nicodemus, Jesus is teaching the divine side of it. On God's side, he has to do a work in our hearts. He does a work in the heart of this young man, changing his outlook on things to where he finally comes to himself. How does he come to himself? God touches his heart. And he says, you know what? He's a different man. He's a different man when he runs back, isn't he? He's not going back to demand his birthright. He's thinking, maybe I could just slip in and be one of the least of the servants. The way I've treated you, Father, I shouldn't be here, but I beg for your mercy. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. Please forgive me. You see, he's a changed man. And the Father entrusts himself to him, doesn't he? In fact, when he sees him off in a distance, what's he do? He doesn't even wait for him to come all the way. He meets him. He runs to him, and it's a beautiful imagery. And that's the human side of it. That's the human side of it. But he doesn't do this till he comes to himself. The good news is he comes to himself. This was not the case with the Israelites who wandered in the desert, is it? The psalmist, looking back at the Israelites who wandered in the desert, in retrospect says, listen, here's a warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as they did, because they never came to themselves. They never came to themselves. There's many people running around in our current culture right now who haven't came to themselves. They're not going to come to themselves unless the Lord touches their hearts. That's why prayer is so important in evangelism. Prayer is everything in evangelism. We need God to work. We can't do this by ourselves. We can't do this through programs. We can't do this through methodologies. You have all this stuff, all these books. They say they could fill the room with all these methodologies. It's rubbish. God has to touch the heart. Our assignment is the gospel. Our assignment is prayer. We're not in charge. Spurgeon used to say this. He used to say, listen, you can't repent whenever you please. When was the last time you heard a pastor say that? You can't repent whenever you please. We like to think I can repent anytime I want. No, you can't. When should I repent? Do you hear his voice? This would be a good time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Right? Hebrews? Hebrews? Psalmist, we can't repent anytime we please. We're not in charge. And along those lines, my second point is it's not natural to believe. Someone said, what? It's not natural to believe. It's not what man in his fallenness naturally does. How can I conclude that? Look with me to 1 Corinthians. I was hoping you would ask. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 2, actually. Let's start with chapter 2, and let's look at verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Our translations will differ a little bit. The King James, I love the King James. You guys know I love the King James. The natural man, says the King James. The natural man. The ESV says the natural person. I think the NIV says, I wrote it down. I know so many of you have. What's the, what's the NIV? The man without the spirit. The natural man. The natural person. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. You see, there's a spiritual discernment here. The spiritual discernment. It's not a natural thing for him to believe because it's foolishness to him. But in contrast to him, verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. Now what's the difference? So then now nat- you have the natural man in verse 14 and the spiritual man in verse 15. The difference is the Holy Spirit, the man who's been born again, the man with the Holy Spirit, the man who's had... Water sprinkled on him so he's clean by the hands of the Holy Spirit, so to speak. Ezekiel 36. The man who's been washed, regeneration, because of the goodness of the Lord. Not out of anything he has done, but out of the goodness of God. He has gone from being the natural man to becoming the spiritual man. But it's not natural. Faith, saving faith, is not something the natural man does, it's not natural. And I share that with you, really not so much as a point, but as a stepping stone to this third point that I definitely, we need to hollow this from the housetops. The third point is Jesus looked for true saving faith evidenced by a changed heart, not what has been called enthusiasm for the spectacular. Enthusiasm for the spectacular. Let's go back to 23. Back to John, chapter 2, verse 23. There, when Jesus is in Jerusalem, they're seeing the spectacular. They're seeing these signs that he's doing. As a result of these signs, we're told that they believe, but there's something wrong. Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them because there's something wrong. Well, what's wrong is they're all enthusiastic about these signs. Do we have that problem today? Some of you really smiling here. You know we have that problem today. People are so locked up in this spectacular praise team. You know, the, the music. I don't like this particular ministry because I don't like the music. Really? The music? I mean, all of us have different musical tastes. You know what we ought to all be concerned about? Is the lyrics. What are we singing? I can, I can tell you, and I can promise you, you can take these lyrics home with you. I'm so proud of Donald. I mean, he does such a great job. Sunday after Sunday, bring to us. Most of these are old hymns, by the way. Many of these are just old, old hymns that have stood the test of time. I'll tell you a quick story about this. Uh, Wanda, Tina's mom, she came to me one time. She said she had had a really bad night. And she said, as I was having a really bad night, I thought of that song that we sing, and she rattled off. I don't remember what song it was, but she she rattled off the lyrics of the song. And I said to her, I said, Wanda, do you realize where those lyrics come from? She didn't know. I said, that's Scripture. See how important the lyrics are? Why did she have comfort that night? Because we sing Scripture. It's because we sing the gospel, and and coming in here and hearing the gospel over and over and over again, she found comfort. That's what we ought to be concerned about where music is concerned. What are the lyrics? Well, people want to spectacular. They want lights. We got some lights. I mean, they're fluorescent lights. The purpose that they serve is so we can see our Bibles, This is not a stage. I'm not standing on a stage. It's a platform. Why am I standing? So that you can see better, but that isn't the real. There's a theological reason. I built this. There's a reason I did that. It's to raise this pulpit. Why do we want this pulpit raised? You go back in the old churches and you look at the architecture of the old churches, especially the Reformation churches, you're going to find the pulpit way up in the air. And there's a stairwell to get up to it. Why is that pulpit way up in the air? It's to put this book up there. It's to put God's Word up there. That's why it's up there. What amazes me after 12 years of planning a church is how many times I've heard People get real excited about something some guy says that the Lord said to him. Some guy come to me, prophesied, he said this, he said that, and they're just amazingly excited about something some guy thinks the Lord told him, and yet when you talk to them about the Word of God, by contrast, they seem completely indifferent to the Bible. I'm going to tell you right now, if you do not love the Word of God, There's a problem of great significance in your walk with him. Because if we love him, we're going to cling to everything that he says, aren't we? Why do people focus on the spectacular? It's because their minds are on earthly things. And there's so many voices today. You've got all of these guys today, that, these people that just cater to that. You know, they just cater to that. You know, we're, we're in 1 Corinthians still, right? Are we still in 1 Corinthians? We'll say, well, we will be now. I won't keep you much further, but I want to show you something here while we're there. Notice in verse 18 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. See, the natural man doesn't believe. It's not natural to believe. It's supernatural to believe. Belief is supernatural. It's a gift from heaven. It's it's something that one who's been born from above does. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is this one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where are the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God. Through wisdom it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. Look at that. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Preaching. No one's interested in that anymore. That's should say Salta. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse twenty-two. For Jews demand signs. Now, we've been talking about that, haven't we? Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. I can. You know what? If we would take this current culture and we would bus it back into that, back into time, into this culture, I can see it now on the back table are all the books. Winning Jews for Jesus. Winning, winning the Jews. I can see the books now. The Jews like signs and to be contextual and to be missional. We need to give them signs. Give them sign after sign after sign. And then you go to another place and they got oh, winning. Greeks, and they got their pile of books, and they said, well, you know, the Greeks like wisdom, and they like eloquence in speaking, so let's have a conference, and let's get everybody together, and we'll get a conference. We'll sell a bunch of books. We'll get a bunch of people, and we'll teach everybody how to be eloquent in speech, and we're going to be chock full of wisdom, chock full of eloquence. We're going to be chock full of signs, and away we're going to go. We're going to win everybody. Is that what the apostle Paul did? Look at chapter 2, verse 1, and I... When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul didn't make it to the conference. He missed the conference. No, he said, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message was not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The Apostle Paul believed the gospel. He believed the gospel was the power of God for everyone who believes, and he was dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do the work of God as he preached the word of God. That's how we do evangelism. That's how we keep from having all these spurious, spurious conversions. You know, you have all these people say, yeah, I believe, and you talk with them. They don't know anything about the gospel. They don't know nothing about the gospel. You start to talk to them about basic theology; They don't know nothing. No, I'm not saying that as soon as we come to faith, we know all this stuff about the other. I'm not saying that, but they don't even seem to know enough. You have to know a certain amount of stuff to have any idea what you're saying you believe in. What do you believe? I just believe. Believe what? I don't know. But there was a lot of tears, and the band got real loud, and you, you see where I'm going with this? What a mess we've made. What a mess. I don't like to end on words like this, I like always to end on positive things. Psalm 119, you don't have to turn there, I've already made you turn about a zillion times, but the psalmist says in Psalm 19, not once, not twice, but he says it three times. He says, I love your law. I love your word, Lord. And David says in Psalm 19 that the rules of the Lord are more to be desired, are they, than gold, even fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. No, it's the power of Christ crucified for sinners. That's, what, that's what's spectacular. What's spectacular? The cross, that's what's spectacular. What's spectacular is that God himself would come in the person of Jesus Christ to die on the cross to save wretches like us. That's more spectacular than a light show, isn't it? That's more spectacular than any kind of theater presentation that we could put on. What could possibly be more spectacular than that? But the natural man, it just goes over his head. You know, I think of old, you know, Billy Sunday, this old preacher used to say, listen, sitting in church doesn't make you a, a Christian anymore, and standing in a stable makes you a horse. It has to be this inward transformation the question I want to leave you with this morning is, have you been transformed inside? Have you been transformed? See, I'm not interested in how many people come here. I'm not interested in anything but that inward transformation. That inward transformation. And join me in that. Have you been transformed? See, it's the difference of life and death. That's the difference of heaven and hell. Because you can't see the kingdom of God without it. Someone say, well, how do I how, how, how do we be? Jesus, Jesus calls us to repent and believe. So I don't know, I really believe. Well, call on him about that. That'd be part of your repentance. Lord, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. That's what we're to tell people. Maybe we tell people about Jesus. We just tell people about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, Son of God, the Christ. Tell them the stories. Amen? Heavenly Father, be glorified in our midst, O Lord. Show, O Father, your your great power and your great glory by touching hearts in our culture. Even if there's someone here this morning listening and saying, you know, I think I'm a lot like Nicodemus. I've been around the church for a long time. I know all the language and all the lingo. I can fool everyone. Lord, we can't fool you. We cannot fool you. You see each of our hearts. They're laid bare before you. What an uncomfortable thought that is, but also what a glorious thought that is. Father, because you know what we need. Oh, Father, give to each of us what we need. Give to each of us, oh, Lord, exactly what we need, just as you gave to Nicodemus. Give to us saving faith, Father. There's lots of faith out there that's not saving. Give to us that saving faith that comes from heaven above that we would truly be transformed, that we'd no longer be the natural man or woman, that we'd be the spiritual man. We'd be walking with you, loving your word, loving you, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.